Ephesians 6, verse 10. This is what I'm looking for. To 13, three verses. Sets us up for really the, uh, the end of Ephesians. Let me read and we'll pray. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armour of God, that you may be able to withstand in the day of evil, and having done all, to stand firm. Father, every time we we open your word, we are humble to think that there is no strength in us to comprehend your mind, no strength in us to achieve or earn salvation. Lord, we are absolutely weak. Lord, we need to be humbled regularly as we are puffed up often. I know my heart is often proud and arrogant. Lord, I repent of that. Lord, as we come to your word, would you humble sinners and exalt yourself? Would we promote holy living through the power of your spirit? Father, there's an enemy who is deceptive and a liar And is trying to take the joy that we have in you and is trying to separate us from the grace that we've experienced, although he will not win, he can certainly hinder our faith journey. He can certainly get in the way and cause us grief. Lord, I pray that this evening as we unpack your word, would your spirit speak to us not only speak to us, but equip us and strengthen us to fight against the schemes of the devil. Bind us together, Lord, as one, as you are one, as Jesus prayed. Let us be one, one body, standing firm, enduring to the day that you return, Christ, and claim us completely as your own and glorify us with, you, with yourself, where we will be made perfect in resurrected bodies. Lord, we long for that day. And we wait for it with anticipation. In Jesus' name. Amen. The devil and demons is an interesting topic to to speak about. Uh, Of course, there are extremes to which people have fallen into. uh, Extremes and uh, traps that people have fallen into. You may uh, know the person who is obsessed with demons. Uh, it's the only thing they want to speak about. The, the Christian, maybe, that is obsessed with demons is the one who tells you that every sickness uh, is from demonic oppression or every bit of anger means you've got a specific spirit in there. I once was told that I had the spirit of Jezebel in me. 
that is a reference from the Old Testament, but never is it mentioned that there is a spirit of Jezebel, as a person Jezebel, uh, and that it needed to be derived from me, or driven from me, would probably be the correct term. These are the people who are uh, far on the side of that uh, demons are in control of uh, all the evil, and we've got to really uh, be practicing exorcisms, and we really need to know how to, how to drive demons out of our lives. That's one side. Not the place I sit. I think that's wrong. The other extreme that we can get to is the person or the people who are just ignorant, completely ignorant. There are no demons. The devil doesn't exist. Or if he does, he's, he's, he's mild. He's in the background. He doesn't really do anything. He doesn't interfere in our world uh, today. Uh, both of these are unhelpful. Both of them are unbiblical. And we need to find out what the Bible actually teaches about the devil because the Bible teaches a lot about the devil. He's there in the beginning. He's there all the way through the, the Bible. Jesus speaks of him and to him. Jesus talks to the devil. So he's very much real. If you believe in Jesus, you have to acknowledge that there is the devil. So we need to understand, well, what is it that the scriptures teach about the devil and how do we respond to him? Now, I think we are in a dangerous place of being on this side, of the people who believe that the devil doesn't really have much say or is doing much at all. I think the devil's greatest lie, and I believe it was C.S. Lewis that said this, that the, the greatest lie of the devil is that he doesn't exist. He doesn't say that to the whole church, the global church, but to the West, us so-called educated people. Uh, we are told by the devil the greatest lie that he doesn't exist. Because if the devil doesn't exist, and if we're not seeing crazy spiritual things, like some places in the world do see, demonic influence, the Bible does say that the devil uh, can do signs and wonders, and people will come as false teachers doing signs and wonders. If we're not seeing those things, then that's never going to cause us to explore spirituality. Rather, we're going to be like, well, there's no spiritual things, it's all about science or academics, let's study, let's understand, we need evidence of all things, there's no spiritual world at all. That is what the devil wants us to believe. But that is a dangerous spot for the church. The dangerous place for Christians to not believe that the devil is on the prowl, as Peter says in his letter. We need to be careful and we need to know that he is clever in his attacks. He's deceptive. Look at the way he deceived Eve in the garden. He used her words uh, against her. We need to be ready for the battle and being ready for the battle is knowing who our opponent is and knowing the power that he has and the power he doesn't have. So Western Church or our church here in the Hunter Valley, are we ready for warfare, spiritual warfare? Have we lost our edge in that battle because we haven't been thinking much about it? Not just us, but the global church. Or even just you individually. How often are you thinking, man, I'm at spiritual war today. The moment I wake up in the morning, there is a warfare going on for my soul. Am I ready for that war? Are we calling for urgency to fight? Brother, sister, fight today. Stand firm, as this passage will say multiple times. Are we calling one another to take 
uh, courage in the fact that Christ is our strength and he has defeated Satan, although Satan is still active in our world. And have we got a resolve, a resolve in us to endure to the very end, to make it to our old age if we get the blessing of living to old age and falling asleep one night and drifting off being our last time we fall asleep, knowing that we've been faithful to the very end and entering into glory. Do we have a resolve to endure? 2 Corinthians 2.11 tells us that we should not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of, for we are not ignorant of his design. We shouldn't become outwitted by him because we don't want to be ignorant of his design. In other words, the Bible has laid it out clear what the devil can do and what the devil can't do, and we should know what he can and can't do so that we're not fooled by him. So that we're not pushed aside or, or detoured off the track or separated from one another. Because in the end, the truth is the devil can't steal our salvation. No one can snatch us from Christ's hand. But he can separate us from the church. He can make us bitter and angry and resentful. He can make us lustful. He can make us a lot of things. He can make us those things because those things are within us, as we will explore a bit later on. So over the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at the armour of God, which is a passage we probably know reasonably well if we've been in church for some time. We're going to look at that next week in detail as we think about the different parts of the armour. But we want to prepare ourselves by understanding the enemy, but also understanding who we stand firm in, and the one who has victory over him. So we want to be encouraged to fight the good fight, to know who our enemy is, to know that Jesus has defeated him and uses his his uh, attacks to refine us and purify us. God has a plan in the midst of Satan's chaos to purify his bride. So let's unpack this. Verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Paul opens his section here at this this sort of turning point to really say, I'm coming to a close, I'm wrapping up this letter. Remember, we've been looking at a letter that's written to the church of Ephesus, and it's a worldly city, a lot of pagan gods all around the city, and he's been writing to a small church, mix of Jews and Greeks, slaves and free, a crazy mix of people, and he's been... For chapters 1, 2, and 3, stating this is the mystery of the gospel. This is what you have been called to. You have been brought into Christ. And Paul's famous term is in Christ. You are in Christ. That's how he referred to a Christian. He rarely uses the word Christian in his writings. He says you are in Christ over and over again. And this is really the truth that he wants us to take from it, whether he says You've put off the old self and you've put on the new self, be an imitator of God, or here, be strengthened in the Lord and His might, or a bit later, put on the armour of God. The point is, put yourself aside, your strengths, your abilities, your intelligence, and put on Jesus, and live in Jesus. 
So he's linking in from the uh, last few weeks, this passage, finally be strong in the Lord, and he's really not saying anything new, he just uses different analogies and different metaphors. Over the past few weeks, he said, uh, from chapter 4 onward, walk in a way that is worthy of your calling. So this has really been the theme. How do you walk? Walk in the way that is worthy of your calling. Well, your calling is to be holy and blameless. So walk in a way that reflects holy and blamelessness. And then he keeps going on. Walk in love. Walk like Christ. Walk in wisdom. Be careful how you walk. Is in chapter 5. And he's pleading with us to be a people who examine the way we walk. And of course, walk means the way we live. How do we live our life? He wants us to reflect on that, to think about it, and be careful that it reflects chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Ephesians. In other words, what we've become in Christ. And now he uses the metaphor of war, a warlike language. So he's urging the church and sort of putting a bit more weight on this seriousness of how we're living in the world we're living in. He's been pretty friendly up to this point, but I can imagine like the pens pressing into the page, except he probably wasn't writing, he was probably speaking to a scribe, but maybe he was pacing in the prison, getting quite intense, because this is warlike language. Warfare. So, like armour, weaponry, preparing for the battle. In, in fact, as he writes his last letter, or one of his last letters to Timothy, in 2 Timothy, he, he writes, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. So he's pleading with us to take this seriously as a church. To be ready for the war that is all around us. And he gives us three objectives. Be strengthened, put on the armour, and stand firm. Be strengthened, put on the armour, and stand firm. The ultimate goal is that we stand firm to the very end. To the last breath we take on this earth. To the end, he wants us to stand firm. So we've got, be strengthened. Be strengthened in the Lord and the strength of his might. He doesn't really leave room for us here to add ourselves in, does he? Be strengthened in your education, be strengthened in the place you live, or your wealth, or your maybe you're just strong. Be strengthened in your strength. He doesn't leave room for us. No, be strengthened in the Lord and the strength of his mind. That is ultimately the gospel message. We are weak, and we are in need of a powerful saviour. And sure enough, we have one in Jesus. Now what we need to be aware of is there's those who don't stand firm. The, the objective is that we stand firm to the end, but there are those who don't stand firm. Now we've got two different sort of ways this can go. There's those who don't stand firm and are still saved. As I said, Satan can't steal our salvation. But there are those who are maybe among us, definitely part of a church, who aren't really in Christ. Hebrews talks about it. They've been enlightened, they've experienced the fellowship, but they fall away. They never had true salvation. We see this in Jesus' parable of the sower. 
The parable of the sower, Jesus says, uh, we go out, it's like a farmer going out and throwing seed, and they fall on the paths and the rocks and among the thorns and the good soil. What really, what, I can't get over this parable. I've been hearing this for the last 12 years, and I still get stuck on the thorns. The reason I get stuck on the thorns is because I think in the Western church, there are a great many people in the thorns. Because let me tell you what happens in the thorns. The, the thorns, the seed gets thrown into the thorns, and Jesus says the thorns grow up, or the, the plant grows up, and, and it gets choked by the thorns, and it proves unfruitful. And then he says, what that means is the choking of the world are the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desire for other things. Those, that concerns me. It concerns me for a, a church in Australia, our church, global, thinking national church, because we're not persecuted in any way. So there's no way of really refining or weeding us out and, and, and seeing actually who is faithful and who's just there because it's a fun thing to do or it's a, it's a nice fellowship to be a part of. But there are a great many people who are in danger of being among the thorns, who have cares of this world, deceitfulness of riches and desires for other things. In fact, as I think about it, I often find myself in those places. I often find myself worrying about this world, thinking of wealth and desiring other things. So what do we do about it? So I believe that I'm saved. Well, the Christian who is in the good soil, it says they produce 30, 60, 100 fold, they have an ultimate end, and their ultimate end is that they will glorify Christ and live with Him forever. That is what changed in our heart when we came to know Jesus. Our desire was away from Him, our desire becomes for Him and for His glory. Let me decrease, Him increase, and I want to be with Him forever. Now, although our hearts wander in this world and at times head down the path of cares of this world, deceitfulness of riches and desires for other things, my ultimate end never changes. I come back to him. I want to be with him forever. I want me to decrease and him to be glorified, lifted high. So the one who stands firm, the one in the good soil, is not the one that becomes consumed with those things and runs off forever after him that comes back in repentance. Stand firm is the ultimate goal. It's the ultimate assurance of our salvation that we stand firm to the very end. The theme is war, and life is a war, and the war is to remain faithful to God. We need to be strong and courageous, as that great book of Joshua, God says, be strong and courageous, for I am with you. So when we go into this war, and there's the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, the desires for other things, all plaguing us, and Satan using them to try and distract us from Jesus, we can say, I'm not strong, I am weak, but the one who saved me is strong. The one who saved me is far stronger than these desires. 
The first step in the fight against the flesh, the first step in the, in the fight against the devil is admitting you're weak. We go at it with our strength and go, I've got this. I'm going to rock this. You've probably lost out of arrogance. The first step in admitting our fight against sin is that we just can't. You hear so often, I hear it so often when, when I'm pastorally caring for someone and, and it's all, the, the language is often, I try. I just need to try harder. No, you just need to admit. You just need to admit that you can't, that you're weak, that you're vulnerable, that you're proud, that you're lustful, whatever it may be, just admit you're not telling God anything new. He already knows that's why Jesus died. So we come and we admit, I can't do this, but Lord, you can, you already have. You've defeated sin, Satan, and death. Help me to have victory. Now, it's important to remember that this is all about our union with Christ. Our strength comes from how connected we are to him. It comes from our intimacy with him. Over the last few weeks, we see that we can only be a godly husband or a godly wife or a godly boss or a godly employee or a godly child, a godly parent, if we are bound to Jesus. If we are in tune with him and and getting to know him and understanding him more and seeking his power and strength through his word, prayer and fellowship with the church. So it doesn't matter if you are a new Christian of a few weeks or a few months, or if you've been following the Lord for the last 10, 20, 30 plus years. That's not going to help you in this battle. Years with Jesus, or years as a Christian, is really not going to help you, apart from the experience of studying the Word. If your faith journey has been one of faithfulness in studying the scriptures and prayer and understanding the word, then that will help you in the battle against sin. Because the only thing that we can use against our battle against the flesh and the devil is our union with Christ, our relationship with Christ. And I believe everyone comes to this point, we get enthusiastic, right? When we we come to know Jesus, we're all puffed up, we're excited, we're like, yes, I love the Lord, I'm going out, I'm going to evangelize, I'm going to disciple people. At least that's what I did. Quit my job, actually lost my job, became a youth pastor, thought I could conquer the world. Five years in, not even, four years in, burns out. Didn't want to do it. Flat, hated the church, hated God, was angry, miserable. And it was the place God wanted me to be. Because I was doing it all in my own strength. I was doing it in my own strength, tracing after man's dreams through God's work, which is some of the worst things you can do. But it wasn't humble submission to God. It wasn't in deep prayer and deep fellowship with the Lord, knowing that I can't evangelize anyone. Only the Spirit can change someone's heart. I can't disciple someone through wise wisdom and good counsel. Only the Spirit can sanctify someone. So when God built me back up and worked in me and humbled me that I would decrease, and I started work in Hamilton South, my wife and I came up with a new vision. Our vision wasn't to have 500 people in a church. It wasn't even to have one convert. That wasn't our vision. Our vision is... 
and will be till the day that we die, that we are more in love with Jesus when we finish than when we started. That is the vision. That's my prayer for you. It's my prayer for the church at Hamo South, that however long you are here, whether you are here for six months or 60 years, that you will be more in love with Jesus when you finish than when you start. Because if you are more in love with Jesus when you finish, there will be fruitfulness throughout the ministry, which is great, but faithfulness is far more important. Faithfulness to the end, enduring to the end. And we see that in this church, in Ephesus, because we know the end result of Ephesus. Revelation 2 tells us that they lose their first love. They have good doctrine. They, they know the right things to say in, in their question and answer of, of Christian theology. But they don't love him anymore. Their union with Christ, their fellowship with Christ has sort of fallen apart and their fight against sin, Satan and the flesh is just is, is nothing anymore because they're doing it all in their own strength. And Jesus warns them, he says, come back to your first love, repent of this. Otherwise I'll remove, remove your lampstand. And sure enough, the Ephesian church doesn't last much long into the second century and it certainly is not there today. We've got to be careful what our goals are. Because our goals can often be all about us. Why did I want a big youth ministry? Looks good. I looked good, you know. Sort of speaks a lot when, when you've got a big church or a big ministry, people start to notice. But it's a lot harder to have a small ministry that feels like it's struggling along. But if you're still in love with Jesus, it's a good place to be. Because you're strengthened in his might. you got courage from him. We won't listen to those lies that Satan will fill us with. The bitterness and anger if we're seeking out Christ and his love. Because we know that Christ didn't revile when, was, when he was reviled. Or loved his enemies. He even said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing while he hung on the cross. So if we were in love with Jesus and we've got this union and relationship with him all the way through these hard things in church, which church is hard, because relationships are hard, and that's what church is, we won't be fooled by Satan in luring us away. So then Paul brings us to be strong in the strength of his might, but put on the armour of God in verse 11. So here's the wartime language. Be ready, church. Put on the armour. Be built up. It's like the call in Independence Day where they're about to fight the aliens and the president gets up and is like speaking with passion. That's what Paul's doing. It's like a coach's speech in the change room at half time, Inspiring a team to be ready there's a war on hands. We want to we wanna win. In fact, we have won because we're in Christ, but they're still coming at us. Satan's still coming at us, and he's going to explain who Satan is in a moment. So he puts on this warlike language. Be ready. Train for war. Wear the right gear. Be connected to the right person, Jesus. But where does the metaphor of war come from? 
Well, it's spoken throughout the Old Testament, and really Paul is in a prison cell, probably chained to a guard, looking at a Roman soldier all day. All day and night. So we've got two probably areas where he's coming from, but let's think about the Old Testament one. Old Testament, Psalm 35 and Isaiah 42. Let me just read a couple of verses from each. Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against them with those who fight against me. Take up shield and armor, arise and come to my aid. Varnish spear and javelin against those who pursue me. Say to me, Oh, I am your salvation. Isaiah 42. The Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war, he stirs up his zeal. He cries out, he shouts aloud, he shows himself mighty against his foes. And there's countless others of God being clothed in warrior-like gear, being ready for war, fighting for Israel, fighting against their enemies. The image of putting on the armour of God is pretty much the same metaphor that Paul uses earlier in walk like Christ or put off the old self and put on the new self which is in Christ. He's just using it to build weight on the urgency and the enemy that is actually at our door. Day in, day out. Satan is at our door. So he's saying, let us think like people who are at war. Think like people who are at war. That's, a, that's an interesting mindset. It's the person who sleeps with their sword and is ready to go at a moment's notice. Now, of course, we don't have a battle between flesh and blood, and we'll get to that bit. But we need to be filled with the Word of God, which is the sword of the Spirit and the way we know Christ, in order that we are ready to go at a moment's notice when that lie comes in, when that lie, that deceiver, plagues our mind. Now, we're going to look more heavily at the items of the armour of God next week, but we see that these are about characteristics and virtues and and it's, a, it's about a connection to Christ. Now, one of the things we often do is we memorise these, the, um, the, the parts of the armour and we pray through them. You know, I've heard people say they pray and, and put them on every day, which is a, a nice way to think about the the, the, the parts of the armour of God, putting on the shield, the, the helmet of salvation and the shield of faith. But I want us to just draw our attention to the fact that he is writing to the church. And in, the, in our individualistic world and the way we often think, we, we read this and we think it about ourselves often. But rather than looking at sort of 20 of us all putting on individual armour ready for war, what about the image of one body, the body of Christ coming together and as one body putting on one set of armour? I think that's how this was meant to be interpreted. The other one's great, it's, it's fine, we can use both. But we are reading this as written to the church. So as we think about the armour of God, us as one body of God, putting on the helmet of salvation, the shield of faith, the breastplate of righteousness, and so on. 
altogether fighting against the schemes of the devil. Because I can guarantee you the greatest scheme of the devil is separating the church. He's been doing it for the last 2,000 years. He'll continue to do it until Christ returns. He wants Christians on their own, individual, bitter at the church. That is where he wants us, separate from one another. But what this tells us is when we put on the armour of God, we no longer have to be in fear or bondage to these things, to the devil, to sin or the flesh, because we know that Christ himself is the the one who has defeated sin, Satan and death. So we stand firm in our armour, ready for those final few attacks as the conqueror, because Christ has conquered. We're reminded in Romans 8 that that, that, that no, nothing, not, sorry, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, and come on, this is one of the best parts of the scriptures. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ, the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what we stand firm in. When we stand firm in the armour of God, we stand firm in the fact that he has conquered Satan. They're just stray attacks at the end of the war. They still have effect, which is why we need to be ready. Now let's get into this deceiver. Now that we know our conquering king, now that we know that we are strengthened in him, Let's just understand a little bit of the enemy. Uh, the rest of verse 11. That you may be able to stand against the scheme of the devils. So put on the armor of God that you may be able to stand against the scheme of the devils. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So this, we are introduced to our enemy. We've heard about him before. He is the, the devil. His name literally or Satan means accuser, deceiver. That is what he is. He has a legion of demons that follow him. He's not like God. He can't be everywhere at once. So we have his demons tempting us. So when we say Satan is tempting us, we're probably being tempted by a demon of such. Do they have names? I don't know. We don't need to get into those sorts of details. But what does this passage tell us? It tells us that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against, and this is really interesting, rulers, authorities against cosmic powers over this present darkness. See, throughout the scripture, we're told that he is the God of this world, little g. Satan is the god of this world. That we are under, or the world, the world is under the control of the evil one. In fact, every single person here was once a follower of Satan, and you didn't even know it. So one of the first things we need to understand is we aren't stronger than Satan. We can't even see him. He's out there in the spiritual realm, the world we couldn't, realm we can't see, and we were once blinded to all spiritual things by Him. Therefore, we're not stronger than Him. 
So we can't go into this war gung-ho thinking we're more powerful than the spiritual realm that we can't see. We need spiritual power, which is Christ, to defend ourselves against this enemy. So when the Bible tells us that Satan is the God of this age, or the whole world lies under the rule of the evil one, that's somewhat confusing because we believe that God is sovereign and in control over all things and his design and purpose for this whole world will come to completion in the end. So how do we understand this? Well, when sin entered into the world and the curse got thrown over the world, God allowed Satan to go loose. But he's loose on a lead, a leash, and he is in submission to God. In fact, we see twice in Job him asking God to tempt Job and say, he's only righteous, he only wants to be faithful to you because you've blessed him, let me take everything from him. All wealth, all his family, take everything from him and he'll curse you. And we see this book of 50 or so chapters of Job just being horrendously attacked and then people counselling him. But he had to ask God and God gives him permission. It's a hard one to grasp. Well, we have Jesus on earth and Jesus speaking to Peter. He says to Peter, Satan has asked me to sift you like wheat. And I pray that your faith will not, your faith will endure. So we've got Satan talking to Jesus and saying, Jesus, can I sift Peter like wheat? Can I tempt him? Can I lure him and entice him? And Jesus didn't say no. He just said, I pray that your faith will endure. How do we understand this, right? How do we, how do we grasp Satan being the God of this world, having sort of free reign over the, the spiritual realm, tempting, luring, blinding the eyes of the unbelievers, but God being ultimately in control? simple way of putting that question is, why did God allow Satan to fall from his position in heaven. So Satan was an angel and he fell. You didn't know. Why did Satan sin in the first place and turn from God? Now the common answer in our day, and it's a philosophical answer, would be that Satan had free will. And if God created us without free will, we would then be robots or machines. The Bible does not teach that. But rather that God has an ultimate plan in mind, and his ultimate plan that is in mind is to glorify himself with the people for his own possession, and in his divine, all-good, all-wise purpose for this world, he created us with the ability to sin that would lead ultimately to a people for his own possession. So in, God, in God's good design, he created Satan, who he knew would fall, in order to bring about his purpose. In order to bring about his end result. What is his end result? That he and his people, his redeemed people, will be glorified in heaven. That he'll be worshipped. And we would say, well, that, that's selfish, right? 
It's selfish for us to think about ourselves, but for he, there's no one higher than himself. It is selfish for me to say, glorify me. Selfish for you to say the same thing, but for God to say, glorify me? If he said anything else, it would be blasphemy. Blasphemy. He'd be sinning. God alone has to be God's number one passion. So God had a purpose for this world. His purpose was before the foundations of the world that he would have a people for his own possession and that he would bring about their purification. And he does this through the chaos that Satan brings into the world. He does this through the chaos, through the suffering, the trials, through our tempting and being refined. So let me give you three things that Satan does to lie to us. He tells us that sin is delightful and not deadly. Sin is delightful and not deadly. It's the greatest lie. Enjoy this. Lust over this. Want this. Sit in your bitterness. Sit in anger. It will, it will do you good. What, what Satan does is he doesn't actually make us do anything wrong or put anything in us. He finds things that are already in our heart, deep within us, and he expands them and blows them up to be bigger than they actually are. That bitterness you have towards the person you're sitting next to, that frustration you've got, that lust that you've got in your heart for another person, he magnifies it. He puts it on your mind and he keeps it there. Jesus said, nothing from outside our body makes us unholy, but it's what is within our heart that makes us unholy. So Satan doesn't put anything there, he just rather makes it bigger and magnifies what's already there. And he tells us that it is delightful and not deadly. Sin is deadly. Now we have our righteousness bound up in Christ and forgiveness for all the things that we do, but it cost Christ his life, the one who deserved no death. The next lie that follows sin in our life. Now you see, we're all fallen. And at times the temptation of Satan will come to lust, to covet, to hate, to be bitter, to be angry and react on that anger, whatever it may be. And at times we're going to do that. More times than probably not. And then the great lie of Satan is that you this time have blown. There's no grace this time. So he lures us into the temptation to sin. We, we end up sinning and falling into that sin. And then here he comes saying, oh, you've ruined it. Just go and do what you want. Just go and live in that sinfulness that you've already engaged in. God can't forgive you anymore. God doesn't want you. And he lies to us about our status before Christ. And we go off and we live in reckless living for a number of days or feel like we can't pray, feel like we're not allowed to read, feel like we're not allowed to worship. Because the lies of Satan is telling us that we have blown. Well, church, can I plead with you to say to Satan, no, and flee from me, as James says, and it says he will flee. Because the truth is, this is where we need to be good at preaching the gospel to ourselves. And preaching the gospel to ourselves is teaching ourselves rather than listening to ourselves. 
Stop listening to yourself, but teach yourself what you already know from the Scripture. So we can turn to John 1 and say, From His fullness, from the fullness of Christ, we have all received grace upon grace. We can say, No, Satan, I have died to sin. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Or even Jesus, who came in the flesh, was condemned in the flesh, so that I no longer have to be condemned, and there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Or when he hung on the cross for our sins, he hung there and said, it is finished. These are the words that we speak to our mind and say to Satan, flee from me. These are lies. They aren't true. So brother, sister, when you have sinned, fallen into any sin, drunkenness, lust, whatever it may be, repent. In the moment, come to God. Worship in that moment. You are allowed to because you're in Christ. You don't have to linger in your sin. You don't have to punish yourself for an hour or weeks. Just humbly say, Christ, I'm weak. I've listened to these lies of the flesh, lies of Satan. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. God, forgive me because Christ has paid the penalty for me. Another lie, and this is a lie that we would gain maybe as a church, and it's the lie that we need to be like the world to reach the world. The lie that we need to be relevant. This is a great danger in our church today. Many believers have inclined to now practice and accommodate worldly practices in our life under the pretense of being relevant. And the pressure comes when we're a small church and we want to see growth in the church, so we move away from preaching the gospel faithfully and we say we need worldly materialism to reach them. We need to be more like the world. And we become preoccupied with what the world's occupied with. So when the world becomes materialistic, we become materialistic. When the world lowers the sexual standard, churches are now lowering their sexual standard. When the world becomes entertainment crazy, the church has become entertainment crazy. And it says we need to be grand like the world. We need all the entertainment of the world in order to see this place grow. When the world glorifies self-worth and self-fulfillment, the church has as well. One of the great lies of Satan is that we need to be relevant to this world in order to reach the world, and it's not true. Jesus was neither relevant, relevant to the Gentiles nor the Jews. He didn't come pleasing either one of them. He came preaching, repent, for the kingdom of God is near. And we are called as the church to do the same. So we can have daggy music and wear daggy clothes and have a really daggy gathering and God can still grow it if we are faithful in preaching the gospel. So let us not fall into the trap of believing that we need to be like the world to reach the world. It's okay to have good music and to not be daggy. But let, not, let us not make those changes in order to reach the lost. So he says to us, sin is delightful, not deadly. He then tells us that we have gone too far and blown it. 
And he tells the church to be like the world, to reach the world. The Christian needs to be warned that when they're no longer struggling with the world, the flesh and the devil, they've fallen either into sin or complacency. A Christian who has no conflict is a Christian who's retreated from the front lines. It's a dangerous place to be. The Christian who now thinks it's just easy to be in the world, it's easy to be in the flesh, it's, it's just easy. It's not. The battle rages every day for our soul and we're tempted and lured away and maybe the reason it's so easy for you is because you've become complacent and no longer fighting sin. So Paul says, therefore, take up the whole armour of God. With this in mind, with this enemy in mind, take up this whole armour. He says it again, what he's already said before, that you may be able to withstand in the, in the, day, in the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. What does Paul want for us? Or really, what does Jesus, the author of the Word, who is the Word, want for us? To stand firm. To endure. So now that we know that our enemy is prowling around and he can have some effect, but he can't have the ultimate effect, we take up our armour knowing the victory is in God, in Christ, who has died on the cross and defeated sin, sin, Satan and death. And we focus our mind on prayer and the word and the church, knowing that Satan's attack is going to lure us from all three of these things. Church first, because the person that leaves church believes they can still do everything else that the church does without the church. I'll have my own church at home. I'll sing my own worship. That's your first mistake. Jesus came to save a people for his own possession. So we make the gospel about us and we drift off into our own little world. It's why evangelism and, per and persecution is often so purifying for the church because it takes our mind off ourselves and fixes it on God. It, it, it takes us away from doing things in our own strength and, and sends us off going, oh, I've got this. I don't need the rest of the church. I'll do it on my own. But if we're all together on mission, facing the shame that the world's throwing at us all, experiencing the same things that each of us are experiencing in the same, in different workplaces, humiliation for the things we believe, disagreements, and our focus is that we're preaching and heralding the gospel, realizing that the only person that can save and take the veil that Satan's put over their eyes is God himself, then we're dependent upon him. Evangelism makes us dependent upon him. I want to finish just with this warning that we might fall into the trap to think fruitfulness in our life or ministry is evidence that we are living a faithful life. This is a danger, dangerous measure because the Jews did this. The Jews came to John the Baptist and were like, look at how good we are. We're sons of Abraham. We've got all this legacy behind us. Look how fruitful we're doing in our life. And, and John turned to him and said, Do you not know that God can create children of Abraham out of rocks? Just because you're fruitful in this stage of life, or maybe it's not this stage, but in, in the near future or in 10 years' time, just because life is fruitful for you, 
whether that's in ministry or success in the world or whatever you define as fruitful, it doesn't mean you're living in faith for long. God often uses, or in fact, God can use anyone to promote his gospel. There are these three preachers who went about Ireland. They went around preaching, much like Billy Graham did, and they saw a mass amount of people come to know him. Masses, huge crowds coming to follow Jesus and repenting. A few years later, or ten, ten or so years later, an Irish pastor was talking to one of these three men, and he got converted, converted through their ministry. And as he started talking to this man, he asked him about the other guys, and it was stated that one of them had left the faith, renounced it, and the other one had gone off into alcoholism and died from it. Just because we're fruitful in one area of our life doesn't mean we're going to be faithful to the end. We need to be on guard daily. We need to be taking up the armour of God daily. We need to be putting on our strength in Christ every single day in order that we don't become complacent. Now, one of these men definitely fell away. Who had a fruitful ministry. He, he, he renounced the faith. He says, I don't believe it anymore. But he, he saw people come to faith. So God used him. The other person, well, maybe he fell into habitual sin. We know one thing. He stopped fighting. He didn't stand firm. Faithfulness is what we want to achieve. And if God so willingly and graciously blesses us with fruitfulness, praise Him, and only Him. But let us endure despite that. Despite what comes our way, despite the victories we see in our life, our ministry, would we be faithful? And fight the good fight for however long God has for us. So that we may hear those, those line, that line, well done, good and faithful servant. To be faithful is what we strive for. To stand firm to the end. And it happens through the strength of Christ. We pray. Satan this week. The lure of the world, the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, the desires for other things have plagued my mind constantly. Lord, I repent of the time that went victory. And I pray for strength. And Lord, I can bet that my brothers and sisters that, that set before me Feel the same. The flesh, the world, and then the devil just expanding everything in our mind and keeping it on a repetitive loop. 
Father, I pray for um, to be strengthened in the Lord, in Jesus. Lord, would we would that have Ephesians 1 imprinted on their mind to be ready for the battle that rages as soon as we leave this place. Tomorrow when we wake up, that we will remember that it was before the foundation of the world that you chose us to be holy and blameless, that we were predestined to be adopted as children, children of God, that by Christ's blood we have been redeemed. What truths to preach to ourselves, let our thoughts not take control, but rather would we teach ourselves these things and correct the lies that plague us, that we are much, Lord, let us decrease so that you may increase. Bring glory to your name, Lord. Help us to stand firm. We can only stand firm in you. So that we, Lord, may hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.